0: That's chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW, void, or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus.
0: Remember,
3: as you're enjoying this fabulous podcast of the radio show, you can also get the Armstrong and Getty One More Thing podcast and Armstrong and Getty Extra Large, our long form interviews available via the iTunes podcast app and the iHeart app.
4: United States, we are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free and we will stay free.
5: That might be my favorite portion of any... Oh, where's, the, where's the super applause line? My favorite line of the speech. Right. That might be my favorite portion of any State of the Union address I've ever watched was, in my
4: adult life. All
5: right, there you go, here you go.
4: Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. Yeah.
3: Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Couldn't love it more. And he's probably wrong. But Uh, it will perhaps postpone the inevitable slide into the. Uh, this, uh, answering the siren song of socialism and the inevitable rocks.
5: I wonder how much that contributed to the overwhelmingly positive poll numbers on the speech that are out today. Well, let's consider
3: that and other questions about the speech in the State of the Union with Lonnie Chen, David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Lonnie is also the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at Stanford University. Lonnie, welcome, sir. How are you?
2: Hey, guys. Good morning. Doing well. That was that was the best part of the speech, by the way, without question.
3: It, it, it was fantastic. You know, I fear that it Not is, everybody stood up. Uh, yeah. Well, Bernie sat there red-faced and angry, but... Red-faced but, and socialist. So, uh, overall uh, impressions, Lonnie?
2: Well, yeah. I, I, first of all, I thought that that was a strong part of the speech because it represented a contrast that I think most Americans... Uh, I, I, Let say, most Americans over a certain age would completely agree with the sentiment the president expressed there regarding socialism. But 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 aside from that, I thought on, on policy grounds, it's actually a pretty good speech. I think he put in there a lot of things that people would generally agree with, the need to have better border security, the need to have more transparency in health care, the need to have better infrastructure. I mean, these are things that, generally speaking, people would find uh, to, to be important priorities. So overall, I thought it was actually a, a, a pretty strong speech. I'm not surprised that the reactions were pretty positive.
5: Not to be too sarcastic, but uh, people also approved of our moon landing and winning World War II. So what, what are, are you, you against right. those things? <laughs> He's thrown some pretty easy-to-applaud-for things, and nobody's going to disagree with.
3: Hey, let me uh, assert something, Lonnie, then you take it from there. I thought it was uh, almost Clintonian in its triangulating, as which is a fancy way to express He said a bunch of stuff that Democrats, like, had to be happy about and applaud for. And I'm looking at the CBS News poll. Uh, 56% thought the speech would help unite the country. Only 8% thought that the divisive, orange-faced president would divide the country with that speech. Not even 10% thought it was a divisive speech. That was remarkable to me.
2: Yeah, that was remarkable. And, and here's the other thing. We we oftentimes respond to things based on our expectations. And I think mm. going into it, you know, the White House had said, look, this is going to be a, a speech that's going to unify people. Everyone said, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. And and then the president comes out and he gives a speech, which was for, you know, I'd say 90% of it was, was pretty unifying. And and I think people then sort of say, well, actually, yeah, that that was, and we expected maybe something that was very different. So The the expectations game, the framing game, that's all a part of the State of the Union Address as well. And in previous administrations, you've seen this where administrations have come out and tried to set expectations. In this case, I think because the president in some situations has been quite divisive over the last year, he was able to come out and give a speech last night. People said, actually, you know, that was quite unifying. The themes in there, the policy in there was quite unifying.
5: So just in general, looking at the polls, CBS and CNN having 75% approval for the speech, you can't get a bigger home run than that, can
0: you?
2: No, you can't. And and I think in the given where we are in our political history, having just come through this really divisive shutdown, having uh, immigration be an issue that is so um, bitterly divided on, on partisan lines, uh, for the president to be able to give a speech like that clearly was a, a, a big win for the White House, a big win for the president. Now, Here's the problem, guys. You know, the news cycle moves so quickly, and we're going to be talking about something completely different, like maybe within a few minutes. So how do you sustain this momentum? I think that's the question.
3: Well, you know, I am absolutely of the opinion that these speeches get an enormous amount of attention in the moments after and then are immediately forgotten. On the other hand, given the situation with the high-stakes negotiation, the possibility of another shutdown uh, the, the argument about the border and walls and fences and the rest of it, I think it it 's kind of unique in that there's now right now is when they 're going to sit down, and the will the mood of the country is going to be a big factor in in what happens
2: yeah, I think that 's right, particularly with with respect to this immigration discussion you know there 's this committee in Congress that got together because of the resolution of the last shutdown. They're going to be tasked with putting together some kind of immigration compromise that both sides can bless. And if you had asked me, let's say yesterday before the speech, I would have said there's a very low probability these guys will be successful. But given this speech and given maybe some of this renewed energy, you know that goes from being you know no no chance to maybe a a, a, a small chance. I, I think so, well, yeah, some of that you, momentum does carry over.
5: I'll say this, you don't have to agree with it, since you work for a lot of politicians, but a lot of politicians are just cowards. And when they see these poll numbers, won't they feel like, ah, 75% of people like this speech, 80% of people agree with this immigration point. Won't that have an effect?
2: Yeah, it will. And and I look, I agree. Politicians are like weather vanes. I mean, they'll go wherever you, you want them to go based on public opinion. And I think that's, that is part of the challenge we have in our politics today, is that there aren't enough enough uh, leaders of principle. So, yeah, absolutely. They'll look at the speech, and they'll see that things like border security are pretty popular, and, and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm for border security. I've always been for border security, when, you know, that's a crock. They weren't for border security yesterday. Uh, so, uh, yes, I think the speech will have an impact in that sense.
5: Hey, we we haven't touched on um, what could be a controversial part of the speech on the side of people that liked it and agree with it and vote for Trump, and it was an ad lib that people that were watching the script it really caught them by surprise. So when he talked about people coming to this country and coming here legally, he ad-libbed the line, more people than we've ever allowed before are going to come in. And that caught a lot of people by surprise. What 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 was going on with, with that ad-lib? His speechwriters didn't put that in there.
2: Well, but I think it's consistent with where the president has been on the issue, in, in that, first of all, he has concerns about illegal immigration, but he also has concerns about legal immigration, and this is why I think a lot of people have been concerned about his posture on immigration. Because I think the posture, even for Republicans in recent memory, has been to say, look, we don't like illegal immigration. But legal immigration, the process of people coming here to contribute to the economy or whatever, that's a good thing. But, but the, the president was true to his... To his form, to what he believes on immigration, I think that ad lib reflects actually where he is as a matter of policy.
5: I would like to know if that was an ad lib he did there standing there, reading the room, or if he thought, I'm going to say this ahead of time, but I'm not telling the speechwriters because they're going to push back against
3: this. Or if the general managers of his golf clubs told him that they are running short of help, (laughs) which has actually been an issue. Lonnie Chen is uh, with the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. So, Alani, the only existential threat to the United States, in my opinion, and, and probably yours and anybody else who has any sense, is our enormous debt. Our absolute lack of fiscal discipline didn't even get a syllable. Um, shocking yet unsurprising, I guess.
2: Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up because it is it is it's a huge problem. I go back to a statement that Mike Mullen who was chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff during the Obama administration made. He said the single biggest national security threat we face is not ISIS, it's not Russia, it's not China. It's the, it's the debt and and it's our inability to deal with the fact that we have crushing debt loads and by the way somebody owns all that debt. We we seem to forget that sometimes. But somebody owns all
5: that debt. We've quoted Mullen's uh what he said there a, a, a hundred times on this show. It's amazing that you can have, and most State of the Union addresses don't mention the national debt. It's incredible, isn't it?
2: Well, it's incredible for a Republican president in particular. This used to be a, a signature hallmark issue for Republicans. And, and it's, it's really, you talk about political cowardice. This is one area where political cowardice has, has, has become uh, the, the meme by which most politicians lead their lives because there is absolutely no interest in addressing the debt. And, and it starts with the president right on down, all the way through. These Republicans are not interested in addressing the debt. They are not interested in talking about how to cut deficits. Because you know what? It's not politically popular anymore, I don't think. I think a lot of people around the country say, eh, you know what? Yeah, the debt's a problem, but give me my benefits. I'd rather have the benefits now.
5: Well, then that's why Bernie is sitting there smugly, because he thinks socialism's coming, whether you like it or not.
2: Yeah, yeah. Lonnie, listen, I'm, we're not here to flatter
3: you. One of the things I enjoy most about talking to uh, ...to you is that you have principles, you have ideals, but you're utterly a realist because you've been around politics long enough. I I just, I find myself wondering, if you, me, Bob Dylan, the poet laureate, and I don't know who else, got together to try to design a message that would reach Americans and help them understand the obscenity of us thieving from our children and grandchildren, piling up enormous debt on their heads, is there any message that could move hearts and minds and, and get a little responsibility back into American politics.
2: Yeah, I, I really fear for where we are right now in politics, it'd be very, very tough. I mean, over, over recent history, there have been some messages that people have found compelling. I think the first is, you know, we don't want to saddle our, our, our grandkids with, with all this debt because it's going to come back to hurt them. You know, that was a message that traditionally would, would make some headway. The message around people you know, Maybe malign actors around the world owning a piece of America, that's essentially what debt is, that used to resonate with people. The notion that we ought to live within our means, that used to resonate with people. It's a different time now. It's really a different time. And so I, I, I don't know. I don't have a lot of optimism that it's a message that would have a great compelling effect right now. But but make no mistake, this is a huge, huge problem.
3: Super, super quick follow-up. When is America's debt a crisis Five years? 25 years? 75 years?
2: Uh, well, look, I think it's a crisis now. Uh, the, the size of our debt is greater than the size of our economy. I mean, just let that sink in for a minute. Our, our economy is the most powerful, most innovative, strongest economy in the world, and the size of our debt load is greater than the, the entirety of economic generation in our country. Right. So I, I think it's a crisis now. As far as when it really comes home to roost, you, you look at programs like Medicare and Social Security, which people love, but which are huge contributors to the debt going forward. As the baby boomer generation retires and people step aside and they begin to leave the workforce, uh, this is going to go from being an exist- a, a, a existential point in the back of our minds to an existential point in the front of our minds, I think. So this is a next 10 to 15-year problem.
5: Well, yeah, and the the problem with when is it a crisis It's the famous Winston Churchill line, when did you go broke? Gradually, then suddenly. That's the way it works. (laughs) Right. It Just all of a sudden, yeah, you wonder how you got here. I, I hate to beat this over and over again, but I want to make the point one more time with so these poll numbers and you've worked on campaigns before where you get up the next morning after a debate or a speech and you look at polls if you were involved in the speech wouldn't you look at the poll numbers before and be drinking mimosas just think oh my god <laughs> yeah
2: no they were they were probably sipping adult beverages last night i would i i would hope i mean it was a it was a it, it, look it's not easy to write these speeches because a lot of times they're written by committee You've got all sorts of different people who are contributing their little pet project to it, and sometimes it can sound very disjointed. But I do think last night's speech had a certain thematic elegance to it, and that's hard to achieve when you're trying to put that much together. I mean, it's, it's not – it's an hour-long speech, right? There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. So the, the White House should definitely take a victory lap today, and, and knowing this White House, I'm sure they will.
3: Lonnie Chen is on the line uh, of the point. Hoover Institution Stanford University you know it, it's it's funny everybody we've ever met who's spent any significant time with Donald J Trump says the same thing that he has uh, he's utterly charming in person. you have his full attention he wants to know about you he's curious he smiles he laughs he's engaged and the rest of it I mean like to the point of being disarming and, and Clintonian. I thought some of that came through in the speech last night, because he can also be a rotten, sarcastic, mean bastard. I mean, there's no doubt, but there there were self-effacing moments. There were smiling at the Democrats. That line, don't sit down yet, you're going to love this. I mean, that was yeah. charming. He yeah. needs to let more of that out.
2: Yeah, and I, I for me at least, what, what I thought was... was Really disarming was when he was self-deprecating, and I think that's oftentimes a critique of this president. He's unable to laugh at himself. You know, the, the line when, when they were uh, uh, talking about the Holocaust survivor and it was his birthday, and then the, the crowd uh, burst out and started to sing "Happy Birthday," and then the president ended by saying, "You know, they'll never do that for me." You know, that,
3: right was, to you know, the he survivor heard. himself, which was such a nice yeah. wink, and you
2: know, yeah, yeah no, it it, it it was quite disarming.
3: Lonnie Chen, David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Director of the Domestic Policy Studies Lecturer at Stanford University. Uh, Lonnie, it's it's always stimulating. We uh, enjoy it very much. Thanks.
2: Hey, guys. A lot of fun. Thank you.
3: Good to talk. Thanks.
2: Yeah, I'd say you get up the
5: next morning and CBS and CNN have 75% approval for your speech. You're never going to do better than that. Nope. Our text line, 415-295-KFTC. Four one five two nine five KFTC. What Liam Neeson said the other day has uh, put his movie on hold. Whoa! <laughs> Among other things, coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show.
4: Armstrong and Getty.
3: The conscience of the nation.
4: If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. Okay, that didn't make sense, but it rhymes. (laughs) I wonder if Trump just wrote a bunch of rhymes to try and stop the investigation. He was just sitting in front of the mirror like, life is fuller without Robert Mueller. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so,
5: oh, um, hmm. if you if you're just hadn't heard this yet, 75% approval for the speech on CNN and CBS. Yep. 75%! With a president with a 40% approval rating and 90% of the media hates him. Right. Listen to this, would you? This is such a
3: beautiful example of uh, media bias. And it's so
5: subtle from the failing New York Times, which is not failing at all. Um, Because they've gone so anti-Trump in their news coverage, according to Jill Abramson, their former editor.
3: Correct. Here's your headline. And it was interesting. I flipped at my Apple News, uh, which curates news for me based on their algorithms. And I thought, okay, how biased is this going to be? Here's your headline from the New York Times. One word that shows the bias. Trump asks for unity, but presses hard line on immigration. The biased word is but. Sure. Trump asks for unity and presses hard line on immigration. 72% approval on the ideas he expressed about immigration. 72%.
5: I just saw a headline um, looking it up at Good Morning America, New Trouble for Elizabeth Warren. I don't know this story. She's as done as Bernie Sanders. She's as done as a cake in her pow wow chow cookbook. Elizabeth Warren is through. I can't wait to hear this. Wow. So the president's 75% approval rating for his speech in CNN and CBS? That's incredible. Right. Let's get to the news now with Marshall Phillips. Now, during the State of the Union,
6: President Trump touched on a number of issues, including North Korea, outlining the success of his policies in calming tensions between the U.S. and the North.
4: If I had not been elected president of the United States, we would right now, in my opinion, ...be in a major war with North Korea. What? (laughs) Much work remains to be done. But my relationship with Kim Jong-un is a good one. Chairman Kim and I will meet again on February 27th and 28th in Vietnam...
5: I don't know what's in Trump's mind, but if he was speaking to Kim with that message, then I think it was pretty brilliant.
3: I I believe it was. Uh, Otherwise,
5: it was really an odd thing to say. Otherwise, it's it's something (laughs) you should never say. You you should never say, well, if 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 she'd been president, we'd be at war right now. You shouldn't say that as president. But if it's to let Kim know, look, that's an option. That's on the table. Right. In this country. Don't think that we would never go to war as as might be the case. Judy and I are
3: re-watching some of our beloved uh, seasons of Fargo, the TV show. So, forgive me, I have violent imagery in my mind. Mm -hmm. But it's as if you walked over to your neighbor's house and said, listen, I mean, to think that my family could have walked in here and shot everybody in your family dead. Thank goodness that didn't happen. Let's sit here and let's talk about the fence. Let's talk about repairing the fence together. You just put on the table that absolute slaughter is not out of the question, and indeed was on the table. And thank goodness that's done. Now let's make a deal. Well, that's that's some serious hardball negotiating. As I've made clear, I I don't think we're going to get very far with North Korea. Their regime almost needs a nuclear weapon to survive. It's almost an existential question for them. They won't give it up.
5: On Trump setting a date, would you say 80-some percent of people thought that was good? Uh, In the polling of that line, in general, what
3: he was, yes, the fact that they were getting together again is uh, has enormous approval, and and why not? Sure. Now, if you want to sound a skeptical note, that's fine. It's perfectly appropriate.
6: During the speech, Trump was also stressing that illegal immigration is an urgent national crisis that has to be confronted by Republicans and Democrats. During the so-to, Trump vowed to get a massive border wall built saying walls work, walls save lives, and are needed now more than ever.
4: As we speak, large, organized caravans are on the march to the United States. We have just heard that Mexican cities, in order to remove the illegal immigrants from their communities are getting trucks and buses to bring them up to our country in areas where there is little border protection. I have ordered another 3,750 troops to our southern border to prepare for this tremendous onslaught.
5: Ted Cruz's beard stood up and applauded that. Yep. Ted Cruz's beard really liked that
3: part. Uh, CBS News poll, the idea, as you heard, on immigration in the speech, 72% in favor. Controversial, 72%. Joe,
5: except for three-quarters of Americans who like that one. R-
3: right, exactly. Only 28% opposed. Uh, he made the point, but not directly enough, that to be against illegal immigration is not to be against immigration. You know, he made the point, but I'd like to see him just absolutely hammer that, because that's that stupid, bone-headed argument that you hear over and over again to get people on their heels, that, you know, it's racist and divisive. Actually, uh, OAC said some stuff we have to get to. Um, She is so wildly at the far end, ideologically, of American politics. Now she's she's become the celebrity, this uh, you know the, the the shiny object in the American scene. But man, she's way out there. We'll get to that eventually, along with uh, Elizabeth Warren, who we might as well be talking about Warren Harding.
5: Hey, we haven't touched on this. Uh, you know, I don't know how people watch the speech. I'm trying to figure out the 75 percent approval because that's surprising to me. Well, go ahead, sir. With with a guy that's got 40 percent approval rating, you know he got an extra 30 percent of people. Who don't approve of them that like the speech, but like th- that long period where he was talking about that uh, the black lady up there who'd gone to prison and the right. minister and all right. that. Sort. Right. How do you not like that? I mean, that was just universally everybody thought that was fantastic, right? Yeah. And and Trump comes off as a nice guy, right? And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big win right there. Plenty of pro woman stuff too.
3: I tell you what, one influence on the uh, on the approval ratings is that fans tend to watch the speech more than detractors. True for Obama, it was true for Trump. Although, so, as you Sean always said, have a somewhat sympathetic audience.
5: More than most presidents, though, Sean brought up the idea of people who like to hate watch Trump. Yeah. I, 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 I think there's way more people that would hate watch than the normal president. Right,
3: right. <laughs> Here's, you know, this is a good example. The uh, absolutely, why'd you go to that I page? shouldn't have
5: said normal.
3: The uh, absolutely insufferable uh, Stephen Colbert, where's that headline? Um, the headline is Colbert destroys president's speech one clip at a time. And if you wanted to, you could. Uh, and if you went into it hoping for that sort of thing, yeah, you got plenty. Just like you know you would for any speech. But well,
5: I think your point probably is if uh, if you pulled people. Watching Colbert, what they thought of him tearing apart Trump's speech, would have like ninety percent approval.
3: Well, right, and that because of the people who are watching Colbert. And if you go in looking for something to hate, or you watch media that went in looking for something to hate, you will get an impression of the speech, which is why the, that's the trouble with us all being in our media bubbles. People who just watch Colbert will yeah. come out of it assuming there was ninety-three percent disapproval of the speech. But, you know, it's the nature of American media.
6: Well, there was no red carpet event at the premiere of actor Liam Neeson's new movie Cold Pursuit last night after he admitted to planning a racist attack when one of his family members was raped by a black man. Neeson revealed in an interview with The Independent... And he walked the streets armed with a club for a week in the hopes of killing a black man when he was in his 20s after finding out about the sexual assault.
5: So he then went on Good Morning America. I didn't hear this. He grew, he said he's not a racist and he would have had a similar reaction if his friends attacked had been British or Irish, which I I'm, I believe.
3: Yeah, I do too. And Marshall, I understand why you phrased it that way because what you said was was correct, literally speaking, but... He was very angry out of love and hurt, and he walked the streets hoping to get in a fight with a black guy so he could beat him, you know, maybe to death. To say he planned to find a black guy and beat him to death, I think is a little different, just emotionally, him going
5: out just full of anger. He he was a ticking time bomb. Right. (laughs) And him saying that, no, 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 I would have done this regardless of the race, isn't necessarily an argument against it being racist. Right, like it just changes. No, no, I think
3: it uh, is an argument against him being racist. No. I guess whoever it is, however they looked, he wanted to kill somebody. Right, whichever I I don't know. Maybe it's maybe I'm slicing too thin. But whichever the racist racist against black people, right? But but he tends to see see things through a racial lens. Perhaps I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. He wanted to beat someone to death.
5: Well, I would say that it's pretty wacky to want to (laughs) get justice for 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 a crime. And then assign a race or a nationality or right. whatever to take a victim out right. is all. It's a very weird way to look at things, right? There you go. That's your
6: news. I'm Marshall Phillips. The Armstrong. Getting Show the Conscience of the Nation.
5: Maybe, maybe, maybe Sean's point is he went out looking for a black guy. He didn't say how tall was the guy who raped you. I'm going to find someone who's five ten. Right. Looking at things through, uh, yeah, a, okay. a racial,
3: ethnic, national lens. What if he was like something incredibly innocuous, like. You know, he's not just a Britisher, he's from Manchester. I'm not I'm trying to make a... a
5: joke about this, it's no. just kind of weird. I mean, because he might have said, oh, did the rapist have glasses on? I'm going to walk the streets with a club, and first guy I see who's got glasses on, I hope we get in a fight because I'm going to kill him. Right. be the same thing. Uh, right.
3: Yeah. It's just odd. Well, listen, uh, violence and vengeance don't solve much, I will tell you this. But I do find it at least slightly ironic that the guy who's built a career on movies full of violence and vengeance and... Death and shooting and the rest of it. It turns out that at a terrible moment in his life, he had violence in his heart, and everybody says, "Oh my God, no! Oh, I can't go to that movie." That's okay.
5: All right, I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying it's ironic. But we now know, as an actor, what he was tapping into, right? Which he admitted and probably regrets. Well, Elizabeth Warren, Warren has done? plenty to regret. She's done. Please I, I don't have, even I don't know this story, and <laughs> I'm not gonna look it up because I want to hear it on this show. When you talk
3: to me about who might run in twenty twenty, do not say Bernie and do not say Elizabeth
5: Warren. They are done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show.
3: Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the of nation. The nation. <laughs> Strong and Getty
4: Show. We must reject the politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution, and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation compromise, and the common good.
3: That's some really good rhetoric right there.
5: That was really good rhetoric, and uh, that might be one of the reasons that uh, the poll has, or the the speech last night, has 75% approval in the CBS poll and the CNN poll. That kind of talk, you know. I saw Nicole Wallace, former speechwriter for George Bush on MSNBC, you want to make good money? Be a Republican who then goes uh, <laughs> anti-Republican and go yeah. on MSNBC. Good money in that. You certainly get as
3: much exposure as oh, you want. Whether you're Joe, Scarborough, I would like to be on all the shows. Okay.
5: Yeah, whether you're Joe Scarborough or Nicole Wallace or any of the the guy who ran McCain's campaign. Right. Um. What's that one from David From. Yeah. If you If you were If you were a Republican. Whether in imagination Enomably. or for real, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And now you go anti Republican, you get on all the cable news channels, and they just love you. Um, but she said, Oh, "Well, he he didn't mean any of that, but he said it." Oh come on! Wow, he didn't mean any of it.
3: That's that's something. Uh, boy, AOC looked unhappy during that. We've got to reject the policy, or the politics of resistance, and come together. And but she's like, oh. she got criticized in a now heated exchange. Peggy Noonan. Former uh, speechwriter for uh, H.W. and Reagan. Reagan. Reagan? Yeah. Um,
5: she, she wrote some of the most famous uh, Reagan lines. Um,
3: she said uh, something in good-natured with the white jackets, who I see some on Twitter are calling the straight jackets. AOC... <laughs> that's, that's not fair. Right. But she said it was good-natured. Then she said, AOC had a rare bad night. Looking not spirited and warm and, and original, as usual, but sullen, teenaged, and at a loss.
5: Teenage. You know that's I an interesting point. I would agree. That's I. I didn't think of that at the time, but it was off-brand for her to to look glum and pessimistic because that's such a Washington D.C. thing. Well, just sit there and look mad all the time, and, and that. But uh, utterly
3: unsure of when she should clap and shouldn't. Because the camera was on her a lot, and she was obviously
5: looking to others for cues. Well, they all are.
3: clap.
1: I
5: saw Schumer doing that once. Yeah. I thought, you're the freaking leader of your party in oh, the yeah. Senate, and you're looking around to see if you should stand or not. That's crazy. So uh, she took to
3: Twitter to defend herself. Why should I be spirited and warm for this embarrassment of a State of the Union? Tonight was an upsetting, unsettling night for our country. The president failed to offer any plan, any vision at all for our future. We're flying without a pilot, and I'm not here to comfort anyone about that fact, she wrote.
5: Hey, I thought Laura uh, Laura Ingram made a good point on Fox last night. The fact that a president... That we're at a point where a president has to stand up and say we won't be a socialist country, even though it got cheers, Mm -hmm. shows you where we are. Yes. That it's even a discussion. On the road to socialism. Right. Yes, clearly. You promised Elizabeth Warren is done. I want to hear this.
3: I don't want to speak with forked tongue, Jack. I'll come through for you right now.
5: I I, I saw what you did there.
3: Former prospect for the presidency, now forget (laughs) it, Elizabeth Warren, (laughs) indicated on her registration form uh, for the Texas State Bar in 1986 that her race was American Indian.
5: Oh, she did? Yeah. Somebody dug that up, did they? Yeah, the rebel. I'd like to know who dug that up. The Washington Post. Okay. Yep. Well, did, were they tipped off by Beddoe's people, or I, Kamala Noah, Harris's
3: people, or? or Bernie's people, or right, or Cory Booker's? First known instance of Warren Warren claiming Native American ancestry. I'm sorry, my eyes move faster than my mouth, and it gets me in trouble. First known instance of Warren claiming Native American ancestry in an official document, or in her own handwriting. So in the world of uh, grievance politics and identity politics and, uh, and uh, trumpeting victimhood, she tried to borrow the victimhood of Native Americans to get ahead in her career. Now, whether it was a, an honest mistake, because she'd been hearing from her, her grandpappy and, and her relatives that they had American Indian heritage, um, it was whether it was an honest mistake or was it, it was cynically again like putting on a headdress and doing a bit of a dance to get into college or whatever? It's uh, in the eye of the beholder, but there's no forgiving you among the social justice warrior class.
5: God, if your so-called uh, identity um, that you're you're putting on is so flimsy. You, you're not even sure if it's true or not. I mean, that's how little role it's played in your life. Right, and that's the key. Then what difference does it make? Even if it weren't true, it doesn't make any difference if it's so flimsy that you don't even know. You can't even tell.
3: Which the good folks of, I believe it was the Cherokee Nation, uh, that's the point they made. They said, listen, you haven't lived as a tribal member. You haven't, you're not a part of this. You haven't suffered. You, haven't, you don't get to just throw it on. Um, To which she says, you know, you make a good point. She had to apologize and everything. But please, no, she depends so much on the super left AOC, social justice warrior, gimme, gimme, gimme socialist thing. She's run afoul of their ground rule. She's done.
5: So I was going to make some sort of claim, uh, though, but I don't think it holds up, that this story came out on the day of the State of the Union coverage when it's going to get buried. It's going to get obliterated. Mm, um, I wonder.
3: I wonder, but it's also just a couple of days before her official announcement. Which, frankly, you know, if you can get your money back on the stationery and the uh, invites that you you ordered, I'd get your money back because doesn't no, help her. Done.
5: It's going to be a tough slog against thirty-five candidates anyway, but it doesn't help her any.
3: Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It reminds me of the Barack Obama thing, and I was never a birther type, and and never will be. But um, I am. I would be shocked. If somewhere in the college transcripts, Barack Obama wasn't claiming to be, was it Indonesian? He grew up uh, uh, to some extent in Indonesia with his stepdad. Um,
5: you don't think he went Kenyan because his dad was?
3: Well, oh yeah, that's possible. Either or both to get
5: scholarships and I don't, get preferential admission. I to American don't, universities. I don't have a problem with that, actually. I've said a hundred times I ought to have done that for my kids. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that because uh-huh. I think it's all stupid. So if you right. can take advantage of that and get some money, go for it.
6: His right. home country in Kenya. <laughs>
3: Right. So anyway, but uh, so old Liz Warren's done. Bernie's done, too. He just he delivered the angry, red faced, uh, independent socialist Soviet Union visitant response last night to the notice and applause of no one.
5: Um and he's just he's he's done. But I would say a moment he had his. So um uh, Beto, for instance, Beto O'Rourke down yes. there in Texas. Yeah. He was on Oprah yesterday and some people thought he might announce and he announced on Oprah that he was gonna make a decision by the end of the month. Announced a possible announcement. Which everybody's caught on to is a good way to do it, because you get five times as much coverage if you announce I'm gonna make a decision, mm-hmm. then you say my decision is tomorrow, then you say I've made a decision to form an exploratory committee, then you say you you know so you get five announcements. You get way more coverage. But it just shows you how the window closes so fast on being the hot thing. Whether you're Chris Christie or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, who was so hot a couple of years ago, you got to jump on it then. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one reason Beto O'Rourke, if he's going to go, might want to do it now. It's why Barack Obama was so smart to say to, to throw away the whole, I'm not ready yet. And it's go, not your turn. And go when he was hot. Right. You wait one more cycle, it's too late. Right. Either oppo Research comes out, or we just move on to someone else, or whatever happens. You got to strike while the iron's hot.
3: The one uh, exception to that rule: Scott Walker, tanned, rested, and ready. My guys, <laughs> The last election,
5: by the lookout. Twenty twenty-four. <laughs> but man, it, you come and go as a flavor quickly. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. I think Elizabeth Warren is done. Well, Kamala's got some issues too. But you know, more she on for the next
3: year and a half.